Welcome to the Scuffed Podcast. I'm Adam Bells in Georgia. With me is Greg Velasquez in Iowa. We talk about U.S. men's soccer. The U.S., of course, faces El Salvador, Canada, and Honduras in the upcoming international window. Really a pivotal slate of matches for everyone in the region. Uh, you know, not just those three matches, but all the ones that are happening in this international window. John Arnold, the man behind the Getting CONCACAF newsletter and many other things, joins me to help us understand these opponents before we play them. John, how you doing? I'm good, man. I am always happy when it's CONCACAF World Cup qualification or any important matches in the region. So, you know, I've got a smile on my face right now. Nice. I just want to say in all sincerity how much I enjoy the newsletter. Um, the links in the show notes. And I, I'll say it's brisk and cleanly written and really a one-stop shop for news in the region, a lot of which I wouldn't see otherwise. Um, I do have a question for you. Do you have a copy editor or do you do, you do it all yourself? No. Because I, I, I never see any I never see any typos in there <laughs> or anything like off. Yeah. No, it's all me. Um, I do kind of check it obsessively. There definitely are some, some times and I like to get, you know, because, you know, as you know, like when you go independent, you don't have that kind of safety net. And so there are times where somebody will tweet me or reply to the email and be like, hey, man, this is wrong or like this, you know, so I appreciate those helps. But uh, I'm glad you find it to be clean. That, that's uh, that's good news. But no, it's it's still just me running it. I'm actually thinking and if anybody fits the bill, please tweet at me. The 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 element I feel like I'm missing is I know some about women's soccer, but the CONCACAF women's world, I guess you could say, is going to go nuts. And so if people are telling the same stories or people have wanted to tell a story that media, major media outlets say, nah, this isn't big enough for us. We don't care about the Aruba women's soccer team. Get in touch with me because that is something I'd like to add. So just a plug before we get rolling here that if you're a women's soccer specialist and you have a story from the CONCACAF region, I'd like to kind of branch into there. Copy editor, Maybe one day, but right now, right now it's still, it's <laughs> yeah. still me doing the spell check. <laughs> you don't need it. You don't need it. Um, yeah, I, I guess I'll, the other thing I'll say is it's, it's not just cleanly written. It's carefully written. I noticed like your, your, uh, your word choices are, um, very precise. It seems to me anyway, I'll quit going on about it. Um, let's start with Panama a little bit because so much of the U S qualification math depends on what Panama does. They play Costa Rica, Jamaica, and Mexico in this upcoming window. What do you think, what do you think their chances are? Like what, how many points do you expect them to come out with and answer that in as broad a way as you'd like? Yeah. I think that when you look at these games, they've been historically quite bad in Panama in, uh, in Costa Rica crossing over. Uh, it's a regional rival who's always been a lot better, uh, but we know that Panama's changing, that it's getting better, that we saw this generation of players make the World Cup, and now those players have been replaced by other good young players. You know, it's been an exciting transition from the outside to watch Panama go from this kind of Mariano Rivera baseball crazed nation to uh, a soccer power, but, you know, a contender 100% in the CONCACAF region. So, I don't know how much you can rely on history, but I still think that'll be a difficult game because Costa Rica has this desperation. I, I think. You know, I'll probably say four points, a drawn Costa Rica, a win at home. And I don't think they beat Mexico, even with the small crowd and, and all the different factors that Mexico is dealing with right now. So, you know, I think Panama beats Jamaica at home, at least, you know, as we go into it, it seems like that's the most likely result. I, I will note, like, 
One thing to to mention about Panama is there like I saw a bunch of people tweeting about report this report from Costa Rica that Panama had a bunch of positive COVID cases. No Panamanian has reported that. And in fact, the president of the Panamanian Federation kind of came out to say, hey, no, like we did have some before this this Peru friendly, but the coach tested negative, he'll be good to go. And, and the players seem to have no no travel kind of issues to get to this game. So I think some people were kind of expecting a weakened Panama in Costa Rica on Thursday. I'm not sure that that's accurate. Okay. That's good to know. Cause we did, we talked about that in our podcast yesterday mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. this let this serve as a correction <laughs> to that. Um, but what about, you know, I, I guess I haven't, I haven't followed closely. Is Mikel Antonio in camp for Jamaica this time? He is. No, Leon Bailey. Bailey is injured. Antonio is in. And it's the first camp under Paul Hall. So some of the defenders like uh, uh, Liam Moore, uh, Ethan Pinnock, who had been kind of on shaky ground for some reason under top of Whitmore, are in. And he also, Hall has called in a couple central midfielders, which has been the big weakness of this Jamaican team from my perspective. Uh, he's not going to rely on Javon Watson, the 37-year-old who we saw play uh, against the United States. So uh, it seems like Jamaica may have a, a fresher look and maybe more competitive, but uh, Antonio will be there. But uh, if I'm not mistaken, this will be his first This will be his first Central American trip. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess I hold out a little bit of hope that they can scratch out a result in Panama City, but I'm a hopeful person. <laughs> I know, I saw the song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I, I guess my view on that is, you know, it's I, I, I am glad that the players and the coach don't talk that way, but I'm not a player. No, for sure. Just a, I thought it was fun. Yeah. No, and I mean, I think, like, Thanks. I believe uh, I said in the very first window that it was possible to get nine points, which then it was like, uh, right, CONCACAF qualification is hard. <laughs> and uh, that didn't right. happen, as we'll talk about with this El Salvador game. But, uh, but yeah. Why does, and I noticed Panama, Panama played Peru in a, um, in a friendly a couple weeks ago. I saw that in your newsletter. Why do they get better friendly opponents than the U.S.? Like, what's going on with that? I think Honduras played... Um, who did they play? Colombia. Uh, Honduras played Colombia. Trinidad yeah. and Tobago got smoked by Bolivia. I think the, the Colombia one's interesting because they want to come to Florida, right? Like that actually, you could, I could see that being a U.S. opponent. The biggest difference in the Peru-friendly, the Bolivia-friendly games like that is that the teams are willing to go. You know, these, these South American countries right now are in World Cup qualification preparation as well. And I don't think that the U.S. Federation would go to... They did years ago go to peru was it peru i believe it was peru for a game kind of a random game sort of like this but i I think if you if you're bolivia right now and you invited the u.s for a january friendly i don't think they'd do it and of course like maybe rightfully so with the the pandemic and everything but you know like trinidad tobago like i said they went in they rolled in they basically had kind of i don't think through any fault of their own but like logistically had the worst kind of atmosphere plan as far as the the altitude they flew in and you're supposed to either fly in and play right away or you're supposed to like acclimate for several days and they basically flew in had one day and then played and they lost five nil they had oxygen tanks on the bench like so you know uh, I'm, I'm not saying the u.s don't play a friendly in bolivia i think that'd be brilliant but i, I definitely think they're like they're the factor in panama trinidad and tobago jamaica traveling for these games is that they're willing 
Whereas I don't think the U.S. would want to do that during their their January preparation. Maybe during another window, um, but I think that you know that with a January camp type roster from both teams, the U.S. wants to have that game in the U.S. where they can market, they can get the ticket revenue, and not have to yeah. travel. So that makes sense. Yeah. All right. One other one other thing before we get into the three opponents for the U.S. Um, VAR uh, video assisted refereeing. It's it's really happening, huh? in CONCACAF now, halfway through the the qualifying campaign? Yeah, it's a little odd that they, they went halfway. I kind of, you know, thought that it was going to be all or nothing. And then it wasn't, you know, they're, they're bringing it in. Um, look, we've all watched CONCACAF refereeing before. My newsletter name is a riff on some of the strange things that happen. That said, like, I have an immense respect for referees, and I think they've kind of tried to do everything they can, CONCACAF and the referee governing portion of CONCACAF to make sure that this rollout will work. And I think that's why you didn't see in the first half is, you know, stadiums in Honduras have never had this before. Stadium in Jamaica has never had this before. So um, not only do you need the technology, you need the referees that know how to use it. They said that COVID really delayed a lot because they're trying to do kind of training camps. They eventually did one in Costa Rica, where a lot of the, the FIFA referees from these countries where their domestic leagues don't use video assistant referee, uh, were able to come together and and, and learn the technology that's been some time now because that was before the gold cup. So uh, I say welcome. And I think a, an interesting footnote as well is that it'll be in both U 20 uh, championships, the men's and the women's this year, it'll be in CCL for every game. Uh, so it's good. I think it's a positive, you know, on the one hand, look, we've all seen, <laughs> we've all seen it screw things up. We've all seen it delay the game, but at the same time, I do think this will allow more calls to be right and for the playing field to be even more level. Uh, in a sense. And that's what we want. We want a fair, clean sporting competition, uh, even if we do want a nine point window, some of us. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Let's start with, um, let's start with El Salvador who plays the U S in Columbus on Thursday night. That's two days from today. They're sitting second to last in the octagonal eight, eight points behind Panama for that fourth place spot. What, what do you think Hugo Perez is, point of view is going into this window like they, they have a real chance here what do you think i i think hugo Perez is a smart guy we know that i think he knows this is going to be tough he's got the u.s and canada this window and then the rivalry match against Honduras sandwiched in between i also think that he you know i'm not saying he's given up hope but i think you listen to his comments and and they know you know, they, they, they look at the table as well. So I think you see a team that, that understands that this is, this is it. This is their last chance, I think. Um, maybe not mathematically, but pretty much, right? So um, that said, mm-hmm. I think they'll still stay faithful to their concepts. I think you'll see them try and play entertaining football. I think the idea that, that Perez wants to put in is maybe more important than the results. I'm sure Salvadoran fans don't agree with that, and that's totally fine. But I think this has always been a project looking toward 2026 when we're expecting CONCACAF to have many more spots or at least a couple more spots. Um, and look, if El Salvador returns to the World Cup for the first time and it's in, uh, since the 80s and it's in 2026 instead of 2022, I think fans will, will appreciate that. But you can't do that without a foundation. I think they've built that foundation. So I think El Salvador's project has been laudable. Obviously, the draw against the U.S., they showed how much they can complicate teams during the Gold Cup. They showed how much heart they have. They showed that they're not a, a bunker and counter CONCACAF team, which has been fun to watch. So, look, like, all love to El Salvador, but when you ask, like, what's Hugo Perez's mentality? Do you, 
do I think that he thinks this can really happen from a sort of like purely sporting perspective, of course, but I think he probably also sees the writing on the wall that, look, you need probably seven points out of this window, maybe all nine, and that's going to be a tough ask. Yeah. (coughs) Excuse me. So, so what does that, so this is going to come back to like sort of the central question for all three of these opponents, but um, what does that mean for how they're going to play against the U S I mean, if the idea of how they want their principles is the key thing and not, and there's like some at least understanding that they're probably not going to qualify for the world cup. Does that mean they're going to come in and play a little bit more open in Columbus or are they, are we, are we going to see them bunker? No, I mean, it's hard to say because their identity is, as a team that wants to play soccer, that wants to play open, that pushes the fullbacks, Tamakas and Larina up the, up the field, that they want to get involved in the attack. And and they've done that against Mexico, right? They did that against Qatar. Like they do that against pretty much anyone. So it, it does seem like if there were a game where you said, hey, you know what, let's just toss it back, see if we can get out of here at the point, maybe it would be Columbus, right? It's going to be cold. The US has the talent edge, basically no doubt about that. And, and, you know, and you need some sort of result. And you could certainly say if you get a draw against the U.S., that's something to build on, right? Hey, now we can beat Honduras. Now we can hang with Canada. You know, hey, we did it, boys. But that said, I mean, I think they're faithful to their principles. And I think they also realize that, like, they're probably better off that way. I don't know that you can bunker and beat this U.S. team right now. So I think we'll see a team that's as, maybe not as open as they were in the Gold Cup, but as open as they've been in some of the other um, World Cup qualification matches, and and obviously that's only led to one victory, but they've also gotten three three draws out of it. And again, I mean, I think I'm certainly not saying they were making up the numbers, but when you look at the the recent history of the El Salvador national team, they have taken a big step forward, even if they finished last in the octagonal. So um, I think fans should get that right. So I, I think I, I think you see an El Salvador team that wants to stay truthful to its identity and to its style, and and, and a bunker just doesn't really fit in there. Okay. Well, that's somewhat encouraging. I mean, cause it's like the best case scenario in my mind is, you know, given the, the three games in tight succession is, you know, going up a few goals and then giving, letting people rest. Now, I mean, that's famous last words, but <laughs> if it's a, if it's a zero, zero draw late into the second half, that's a, that's, that's a troubling sign, I think for the U S. Yeah. Not good for the nerves either for, for supporters. <laughs> Right now, uh, this is another, another reference to the, to getting CONCACAF, but you, you mentioned that Eric Rivera, um, has been suspended by FIFA for over an uh, illegal substance. And I, I wonder if you could sort of give us the story on that. I know he's not a, he's not a key player for this El yeah, Salvador team, but he's not, I mean, look, like it's still newsworthy. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a big absence. They are missing also Josh Perez for documentation issues. He's trying to get his Italian citizenship. Um, and hmm. couldn't make it back. I don't know. Someone in my Twitter mentions actually speculated that maybe he had a mandatory uh, language interview. Their their partner was going through that process, and that's what happened. Uh, so I, I'm not sure, but he's not here, um, at least not yet. So I, I don't think he's going to be in this group at all. Um, so that that's a big loss. Eric Rivera, not necessarily a big loss, but he is appealing a FIFA suspension right now. It's because of a substance that apparently is used to treat tattoos. And he also has noted that uh, it was kind of whatever this fresh tattoo that he had was before the Canada game, which is what he was he was tested after and, and gave this positive, was also treated with some sort of substance by the Salvadoran FA trainer who then was let go. So he, he's... Yeah. 
that's the I, that's the wrinkle that's kind of interesting. I guess I would know? say like from my very uneducated sort of like outside perspective, it seems to me like this guy's not like if you want to say a drug cheat. I, I don't I don't think you know it, it seems to check out. I, I found a case of a Brazilian swimmer who had this same issue. His uh, girlfriend had gotten a tattoo, was prescribed this sub substance, had it on her towel, and the. Uh, authorities there found it plausible that this passed from her towel to his body and he swam in the Olympics. So, uh, you know, there, there weren't a ton of <laughs> other test cases there, but to me, it seems like this is probably, uh, you know, something that might get overturned or shortened and hopefully it doesn't, you know, derail the career of a guy who, again, was in the national team setup, but is not someone who you say, oh my gosh, no Rivera, like, you know, celebrate US fans. Like, it, no, he's a role player. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do the what do the anecdotes or what does history tell us about Central American teams playing in the cold? I think it's going to be like 30 degrees in Columbus. So not brutally cold, but like, is this a real thing that they will struggle in this kind of weather? Or is that just uh, an assumption that we're making? Yeah, I would say. I think that, you know, Hugo Perez, you can probably tell I have respect for him. You know, I think he's a good manager. And I think one thing that's really smart that they've done is they've been training in Indianapolis and it's been cold, um, you know, so they, they I've been, think they've been using some of the Colts facilities, some of Indy 11 facilities, some of that I think is crossover there. And they've been there for a long time, right? Like these guys have been there for about a week and it's, you know, just like the U.S. has posted these photos of Pepe in the snow and, and everybody kind of laughing and saying it's not a big deal. So too has El Salvador. So if you want to believe the, the kind of narrative El Salvador is crafting, nah, it's not going to be a, a factor. I think it is a factor just mentally in the, the sense that it's like, poopoy, like this is, this is different. Um, and I think maybe the supporters kind of are the, are the ingredient that's missing to really make it difficult, you know. Yeah, cold maybe is tough. The field conditions may be tough. But then once you add the fans in also yelling against you, I think that that kind of can be another factor. It'd be interesting to dig into the history. Um, I didn't do that. But, you know, like obviously we all remember I was at the the U.S. Costa Rica game in in Denver, in Commerce City, um, which did clearly affect the Costa Ricans, which did clearly frustrate them. But I also think that there was the element of surprise there, right? Like, Yes, I think Costa Ricans know that Denver is cold, but I don't think anyone was expecting the snow like that, the storm to blow in like it did. I know I wasn't. You know, I rented a car and was slicking around on ice the next couple of days like, oh, this, this was a mistake. I should have, should have taxied because I'm sure these guys have the right tires and everything. So I, I think that El Salvador will be ready for the cold this time around. I'm not sure that it's going to be a huge factor. And I do think like, I, you know, it's funny because I, I'm in my like CONCACAF lane, but I obviously am seeing USMNT Twitter and like seeing the, the chats that you have in your Discord bells. And like, you know, there, there are these sort of people that I see that I think are frustrated with kind of this extra level of protection that the US Federation seems to be trying to add. And I, I would say I'm in that camp, you know, I think it just uglies up the game. And I'm not sure El Salvador is going to be, you know, as soon as they announce that this game is in Columbus, El Salvador finds Indianapolis as their training site. They say, we're going to train in the cold. We're going to be ready for this. And then what have you really gained? So I would be surprised if the weather ends up being a huge factor in favor of one team or the other. It could be, especially in St. Paul, which I'm sure we'll get to, like it should, it could be a big factor, but not for For both teams. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's where I land. Okay. 
Yeah. I mean, Denver is interesting because it, it can be 50 degrees one day and then, you know, you could get a blizzard the next day. And so that, that maybe that's where that element of surprise comes from. But like Columbus, you know, pretty much is going to be around 30 degrees throughout January, February. Um, well, let, before we move on from El Salvador, who's a, who are a couple players we should be watching out for on this team that are, um, that, you know, maybe are in form or there's something, something exciting yeah. about them right now. Well, an interesting one who kind of, we don't know if he's in form or not is Nelson Bonilla, who plays in Thailand. He actually came, overcame, got through, got through a bout of COVID. I don't know how we're, we're phrasing it this days. He had COVID, now he doesn't. Uh, he'll be there uh, and it's his first appearance since the early qualification rounds. So I think Perez is trying to find some sort of attacking spark. Joaquin Rivas of Tulsa is the other uh, kind of central forward who's in. And Jairo Enriquez has been a crazy story. He came in, Perez selected him. He's a winger, crafty player. Uh, selected him mm-hmm. for the Gold Cup, kind of out of, not out of nowhere, but I don't think many people were expecting to see him. His performances there earned him a move to one of the biggest uh, teams in El Salvador. He only has two goals in the final round of World Cup qualification, but that leads El Salvador that haven't had much attacking production. And uh, so, you know, th- that, that's, those are the players to watch and attack. Obviously, U.S. fans know Alex Roldan really well. He's become a quite critical player, despite not having a ton of national international experience. And the same could be said of Enrico Hernandez, who's a, a young guy who's a Dutch Salvadoran. He's only 20 years old, decided to play um, for uh, El Salvador rather than try and make it in the Netherlands youth system. A creative player, kind of the straw that stirs the drink, except you can, you can still mark him out of games. He's still looking for some of that creativity. I think he will raise his level and be a big factor, again, maybe four years down the road. But right now is a player who has shown flashes but hasn't shown consistency. He's an interesting one to watch and has an interesting story with the, the fact that, you know, born in the Netherlands, had actually never been to El Salvador until uh, flying for World Cup qualification. He played for El Salvador in the Olympic uh, qualification tournament in Mexico. So he, like, was around the team and knew the guys but had never been to the country. So... Uh, that's an interesting one. And then their defense has very little depth bells, but I think they have a very good core. You know, we know Eric Zavaleta played in, in MLS. I think he'll be back in, in the league, you know, depending on his contract situation. But I'm a really big fan of their fullbacks. You know, I mentioned Brian Tamacas, Alexander Larin, mm-hmm. both of these guys playing for top Central American teams. Both have had minor chances at bigger teams, but I wouldn't be surprised if in this window or the next you know, Larin, I think, is getting up there. I think he's nearly 30, but Tamakas is still mid-20s. He's the kind of player where it's like, man, if he would take like a, an MLS Next deal or even, you know, if an MLS team took a flyer, I could see him having success, but maybe take a year or two of, of development. Maybe I'm wrong there. Maybe he would, he, would, uh, he would step up right away. But I think those fullbacks, when you look at how they get into the attack, their skills on the ball, but also their defensive abilities, uh, they're players that are fun to watch, if nothing else. In the U.S. will have some opportunities on the wing because I think, like I said, El Salvador will chase this game. But um, also we'll have some struggles because those guys are not going to be totally chill, sit back, do nothing. Yeah, they're going to be, they're going to hopefully be pinned back a little bit. It's, that's Tamakas on the right and Larina on the left, right? Yep, that's exactly right. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, let's move on to Canada. Uh, They'll be at half capacity, I saw in your latest newsletter, and they'll be missing Alfonso Davies. So uh, how do you see them? I mean, not so much the capacity issue, but how, how do you see them adjusting to not having Davies? They didn't have him at the Gold Cup, I guess. 
Yeah. yeah and, and the big question I have is, is what Stefano Stecchio does. He was named to the roster, but everything that came out in Portugal is that he has COVID. Now, the Federation has been reportedly, Canada reporters are saying, um, and I always trust those guys, uh, that they are working to get him good. I don't think he'll be in the first game, but it sounds like he might be good to go for this U.S. game. Why I bring that up is when you talk about replacing Davies, I think Canada has the players to do that. That might sound crazy. Davies has been the best player in World Cup qualification in the CONCACAF region over the whole. I believe he has the most, well, he has the most minutes played because Canada had those um, previous rounds that they had to go through. Um, I think yeah. he has the most shots or maybe second most shots. Maybe Brian Moy of Honduras has the most shots, but he's up there in shots. He's up there. He has the, he's tied for the most assists. So like Davies has been quite influential. So it might sound a little crazy for me to say, I think they can cover him. But when you look at some of the options, you know, okay, let's say you were going to play Davies as a winger in this game or, or as a more attacking player. Well, you still have Tejon Buchanan out there. You know, you still have Jonathan Osorio we've seen can play in a two-way role. And if you wanted to play him as a defender, you have Richie Larea, who already is kind of pushing for a spot in the starting lineup. There's other guys who have done really well. And you can also, you know, Alistair Johnson has done fantastic for Canada as well, sort of sometimes as a central player, sometimes as a wide player. So, you know, I think there are players that can cover Davies' absence. Maybe you could say the same thing about Ustekio, who I think, like I said, will be out for at least their first game. But I think there are more questions about the players that come in. You know, Mark Anthony Kay, probably in no matter what, but then Atibo Hutchinson, a veteran leader, an amazing player, but he's, he's 38, right? Like there are going to be times where, where maybe he doesn't, you know, keep up and that sort of thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to retire the guy. He's still a great player. He's still international level, but you know, we've, we've seen those, those moments now and then. So I think Eustachio has just been really critical in the fact that he is going to be either coming back from COVID or not playing, I think is a huge factor. So Davies, despite being by far the best player that Canada has period, I think they can cover that absence more easily. Uh, whereas if Eustachio is not good to go then, then that's a question mark. But it seems like he'll be back for this U.S. game. And so I think you see a Canada team that, hey, look, it's become a beautiful rivalry. You know, the, the Nations League games way back when, before this, uh, this virus took us, took us down, uh, yeah. you know, like, and, and, and the subsequent meetings, the World Cup qualifier in Nashville, you know, these, these games have been great. So I think it's been fun to watch the, the rivalry develop and this should be another chapter. You know, I, I think it's a bit, not a bit. I mean, look, we all think the virus sucks. We all think Omicron sucks. It's like, it's a shame that Canada won't be able to have Davies for sure. You know, fingers crossed that everything clears with him because what a joy to watch yeah. even as a rival fan. And it's a shame that they don't have hundred percent capacity because this does seem to be this burgeoning soccer nation trying to kind of exert its, do the same thing the U S does to its rivals, right? Like. El Salvador doesn't want to play in Columbus. Mexico didn't want to play in Cincinnati. And the U.S. shouldn't want to play in Hamilton, right? But here it is. This is qualifying like welcome. So it's a bit of a shame that they won't have the full capacity. It's, a, it's, a, it's an enormous shame that they won't have Davies and fingers crossed that they have everyone else available because I think it's a really cool rivalry that's developing. And maybe the U.S. has always had this you know, hatred with Mexico and competition with Mexico. But I have optimism that the Canada one can be beautiful can produce exciting moments. And, and hopefully this is another chapter in that. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, um, 
Yeah, I was just I was, while you're talking, I was just thinking that like during the gold that gold cup meeting between Canada and the U.S., they were they were very much the better team in that game than the U.S. was. Um, and I wonder if you know going into this game, are we going to see Canada bunker the way they did? They, they really did bunker in Nashville and um, mm-hmm. you know hit us on the counter. Are they going to do that? Or are they going to you know being at home? I, I would feel more yeah, free to I, I think, get forward. I yeah. think it, that blueprint, the blueprint for the tactics for John Herdman. Herdman's a smart guy. He always has a plan. He's a very interesting manager. Hopefully, you'll be reading more about him. Um, John Arnold. I'll let you know about that. Uh, trying to work on a Herdman profile. Spoiler: Please, no one steal my idea. Um, <laughs> because look, he's a we- he's a weird kind of. When you look at his history, it's, it's quite odd, right? He's he's never managed top level men was with the Canada women's team, with the New Zealand women's team before that. And all of a sudden, he's probably going to take Canada to the World Cup. So he's a smart guy, lays everything out well in advance, always has a big plan, always thinking about the next opponent. And I think that if you want to look at a tactical blueprint, I would look more at the Mexico game. Um, that Mexico, the, the, the victory over Mexico in the snow. The, you know, if, you, if you didn't see the game, you for sure saw the celebration. Uh, Such a good game. Yeah. It, was, it was a great game, kind of a, a classic. CONCACAF uh, moment. So I think that that is more what Canada will hew toward. I wouldn't even be surprised if they're a little bit more conservative in their trips to Central America. But, you know, I think the panorama bells has changed since the Canada game in Nashville. You know, Canada, I think, was confident, but they didn't quite know what they were working with. And now they come into this window as the top ranked team. So Mm -hmm. look, is the number one team going to sit in bunker at home? They shouldn't, and I don't think they will. So I think that you have a, a potential for a very exciting game. I think they'll try and take advantage of the home field. I think they'll use that Mexico game as not only motivation, but just as reference uh, for what can be accomplished against a quote-unquote giant of CONCACAF like the U.S. I'm stoked. I'm stoked. I'm even more stoked now than I was two minutes ago. <laughs> um, let me let me try to find a couple cracks in their facade. I mean. As far as I know, they rely as as much, maybe even more, on MLS players than the U.S. men's national team does, and they also, which which means they're going to have a fair number of players who are out of season. Yeah, coming and had to camp. cancel their Florida trip. They were trying to do a, a camp in right. Florida where they're going to play a game against Guatemala, and then with Omicron cases rising, they said, "Nah, we're not going to do it." So I think there is a chance that they don't have the rhythm that maybe the U.S. has. But sorry, I interrupted you. No, that, yeah, that's the, that's my question is like, how much do you think that's going to have an effect on them? The out of season players, the fact they did, they didn't have a camp because of Omicron. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, yes, I, I think that's a, a, an important point and a good point, but on the other, you know, some of their key players are, are not in that category. Right. So, and I think yeah. it's increasing, you know, just like the U S has this kind of this boom that. I think people are really enjoying, you know, Canada seeing some of the same thing. Jonathan David is going to be a transfer target for the biggest teams in the world this summer, probably. Tejan just went to, to Belgium from MLS. We all know, we all know him. Jumped um, right into the starting lineup at Club Rouge. Playing yeah. immediately. And Ustekio just moved to Porto. So, you know, th- these guys are starting to get, I think, more standing, I guess, more respect internationally. And Davies is obviously kind of a trailblazer, right? I guess, you know, the U.S maybe had that moment a decade or so ago with some of the Premier League goalkeepers or, you know, where it's like, hey, here's one that kind of breaks the the barrier. 
But I think that there's there's European teams that are happy to turn their attention to Canada right now. So um, you see a lot of players who are going to be informed. But yeah, I mean, I think especially when you look at the back, you know, there there are definitely there have always been questions at the back for Canada. They've been pretty impressive uh, this this series, but especially this this qualification cycle. Um, you know, we've seen guys like like Scott Kennedy emerge. He's going to be in this camp for the first time in a bit since he he missed a couple because of injury. Stephen Vitoria has been really, really good kind of as the anchor of that defense. Um, so both those guys should be informed playing in Europe. But then, you know, like I said, Alistair Johnson's almost certainly going to play a role. He, you know, questions about his kind of Izzy and rhythm are, are, are totally viable. And that midfield that I mentioned, if Eustachio can't go, all the, all the options there are, are MLS or Atiba Hutchinson. So, you know, there, there are going to be players in there that, that haven't necessarily been able to get that rhythm. So it, it could be a factor for sure. And I think that, again, Herdman is a guy who likes to plan every moment, who has this sort of interesting way of working. And I think Florida was probably a big part of that that then didn't happen. Yeah. Okay. Well, unlike the U.S. who had, uh, you know, several of its visits to Central America front loaded in the campaign, Canada has them more back loaded. And they've got two in this window. Um, how 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 do you think they're going to do down there? And um, and then how will those you know they have those long flights just like the U.S. did in the first window where they have to go they have to go down to Central America and then come back and then go back and um, like how will that long trip back from San, San Pedro Sula affect them? I'm 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 looking for cracks in the facade no, again. No, no, I mean I, I think like yeah. it's totally it's totally. Like, I, I think like, I, I, I would say I'm always, a, I'm, a, I'm a respecter of CONCACAF. I, I think like, I, 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 enjoy, I enjoy El Salvador, right? I enjoy Canada, but I think there are cracks in the facade, right? And, and I think Canada will tell you that as well. Like, because just because they're in first place in the qualification standings right now doesn't mean that they're this unbeatable team. And certainly not when they're missing Davies and have some other question marks. So I think, I think it's totally fair. And I think a huge factor, Bills, and the fact that they're in first place right now in CONCACAF is that we don't know yet how they're going to respond to these Central American trips. They haven't, they haven't done it, right? And it's been an Achilles heel for Canada in the past. The, the 8-1 defeat to Honduras, that was a decade ago, right? I'm not, I'm not putting too much stock in that, but like we said, it's difficult to go to Central America, right? We, we talked about, hey, we thought the US would be able to get nine points in that first window, and then El Salvador punches them in the mouth, right? They get a draw, they get the result, get a point and move on. And I think like in a way, Canada will be happy to do that as well. I, I expect them to have some sort of stumble. Neither, as we'll talk about Honduras as well, neither El Salvador or Honduras is, is rolling. Neither of them are flying high. Neither of them are going to the World Cup, in my opinion. But right. neither of them wants to concede defeat. And neither wants to dis- disappoint their home fans. So I think this game against Honduras will be interesting for a couple different reasons. And, and we'll talk about them here in a moment. But like the Honduran goalkeeper, very good goalkeeper, very difficult to beat. It's possible you get into yeah. one of those slogs. And then if you get on a slog and then into a slog, get frustrated, then get on a plane. The climate changes as well. You know, it's going to be different weather from San Pedro Sula to Hamilton. I think it could be. You could see some, some hangover effects for sure. And, and, and that's why I wonder if Canada changes their approach and plays more similarly than, than they did to, to, similarly to the Nashville game against the United States in Honduras and then plays like they did in, in uh, Edmonton. Edmonton. I was like Western Canada, Western Canada. 
<laughs> in Edmonton the, against the, the US. Yukon. <laughs> it yeah. might have. It might as well have been, man. That was uh, that was pretty wild. But no, I, I think my, that's my hunch. Is what Herdman will do is be a little more conservative in that first game, go for it against the U.S. And then, of course, depending on results, you can kind of decide what you do in game three. But I think it is a big factor that we need to talk about, that people should be talking about, the fact that Canada, their schedule worked out this weird way where look, they've been to weird places before. They had to play in Haiti to get to to World Cup qualification final round. Um, you know, they've played other interesting trips and had logistical difficulties, maybe more so than any team that's in the final round for sure. But this will be a different challenge. And I, and I think it's one that they have to to approach well and kind of block out this specter of of getting smashed 11 years ago or whatever it is now, 10 years ago, 12 years mm-hmm. ago, I think it was 2010. <laughs> uh, this, this, you know, that the ghost of getting smashed, this pressure now of being the top team and, and, and kind of the, the factor of travel and all these other things, they do have to block all those things out and how they do that, I think will be critical to their, their success in these final two windows. And I think could have a big influence on what they do in the U S game and how important that U S game is for them as well. Okay. Awesome. Let's, um, Let's talk about Honduras. Before we do, I should, I just want to give a, do a little housekeeping. First of all, um, I, I'd like to plug the pat, the Patreon. If you are, you know, thinking about it, check out the link in the show notes and, um, and join us on Patreon and on the discord. The other thing is, uh, we're going to be, Greg and I are going to be in St. Paul, uh, for the Honduras game. And we're going to have a party at Lake Monster Brewing before the game, 2 PM central time. Is when we're starting and we're going to be, there's going to be folks from Minneapolis city soccer club, a club that's close to my heart there. They're going to, they're going to have a watch party during the game. We'll be at the game. Greg and I will be at the game, but you know, there's going to be a watch party party during the game there. And then also kick it forward, which is a, an organization in Iowa that, that builds mini pitches. They've built about a dozen of them around the state um, is going to be buying free beers for people. We're still nailing down the details on that, but some free beers will be available to people who show up, I guess, early enough. I don't think it's going to be an unlimited uh, <laughs> number. So, so, um, uh, you know, keep all that in mind, John, easily the most disappointed of CONCACAF nations at this point is Honduras only three points so far. Um, so what is, what is Gomez's approach? He, he just took over before the October window or after the October window. Was it? Yeah, it was November that I think he coached his first games. Okay. It all blends together, so please don't uh, yell at me. No, I think that's right. I'm pretty sure that's right. Yeah, I mean, I think the approach is, like, gotta roll the dice. I mean, truly, like, we'll we'll kind of know more going into this final game, but there are many Honduras fans who say, we're eliminated. What's the point of this? Like, there are fans that are kind of, I've even seen, and I think this is kind of like the, the fringe. But there are people who are like, why are we calling in foreign-based players? Let's just let the young guys get a run and get experience. And it's like, well, no, that's not, that's not good. But, uh, but I, I think like when you say easily the saddest, yeah, yeah, easily the most frustrated as well. Because Honduras has kind of become this nation that, look, we've seen their success on the youth level. They go to the Olympics instead of the U.S. seemingly every single time. And yet we haven't yeah. really seen that success materialize into anything at the senior level. Fabian Coito... 
a former youth coach himself, kind of kept that tradition going, but was never able to to break through with the top squad. And now Bolia Gomez, an old, uh, how do you say, a viejo conocido, uh, a familiar face, right? An old guy that we know um, is here and, and trying to, <laughs> to make the difference as well. So, you know, I think like the problem is though that Honduras has too many old faces. You know, Minor Figueroa, who I covered for years in Dallas and really like as a guy, is still a key player at 38. And, you know, like we mentioned, Atiba Hutchinson, who's still a key player at the same age, but the difference is that he's still good. He's still able to, to kind of cover ground. And Minor, he's good for a mistake or two a game, and it's hurt Honduras in this cycle. You know, he, he mentioned just the other day to some Honduran press that he's still looking for a club. He's a free agent right now. And he's like, yeah, I have, an, I have interest in USL. But it's like it's kind of a last resort for me. Well, okay, but mm. if that player is starting for your national team, you're not going to be able to have success in the upper echelons of Concacaf, right? So, but the issue is who replaces them, right? There are some players coming through the pipeline, and and Gomez, I think, has done a nice job trying to find some of those players in the domestic league. You look at this roster, and I think other than than Minor, the defense is almost entirely, or I think, entirely based in Honduras. Honduran league is, you know, we've seen teams like Olympia spring surprises in Concacaf Champions League. But again, if your defense is comprised of even three players from the Honduran Domestic League, are you going to be able to stop Christian Pulisic? Are you going to be able to stop Brendan Aronson? Are you going to be able to stop Ricardo Pepe? The answer has been no. And, and I think it'll continue to be no until Honduras can kind of find a place for these young talents that, that play so well at the Olympic level to take that jump up. There has been some encouraging news, I would say, up front. First of all, they're healthy. Uh, knock on wood, you know, obviously during the pandemic, who knows, but they're healthy up front for the first time, maybe all, all qualification. They should be able to play Albert Elias with Ronald Kyoto, with Toko Lozano mm. if they want to, um, which would be a fearsome trident. Sometimes they rotate those guys out. Brian Moy, another interesting player. I Fingers crossed, Bells, and again, uh, don't steal my ideas, uh, not you, but uh, journalists listening, no. Nah. I won't. But there should be a... Uh, there should be a, a story that I write on Moya. I'm unsure of his status being able to enter the country. He had uh, a history in the U.S. And uh, we're not sure he'll, he'll get the documents. I'm supposed to do that story today. So uh, hopefully it comes out. We, we got to get, get you out of here so you can do that. <laughs> I'll be brief as possible on the rest of Honduras, which is I think the attack is healthy. <laughs> They've got weapons. Um, even if Moya isn't able to travel, they have a good front. And their midfield has been... You know, kind of what you expect from a Honduran midfield. Guys like Kervin Natiaga have kind of picked up that tradition of of guys like Jorge Claros, the pit bull, where it's just like, it's not going to be easy. They're going to be hard tackling in the midfield. They're going to try and win the central midfield battle. It's just about if you can break through that, then you've got relatively easy sledding in the defense. Luis Buba Lopez, really, really good goalkeeper. Um, I think he had a stint with LAFC yeah. that didn't work out, but that surprises me because I think he's, I think he's, he could be MLS quality or, or even better. You know, that was several years ago that he was with LA. So I wonder if he's taken a step up as he's continued to work on his game. But as I think the US will, will notice, and I think Canada will notice during this window, uh, he's not an easy goalkeeper to beat. Certainly not like the Kaylor Navas right. levels where it's like, you know, why even try? But, uh, but he's tough. He's a tough, a really good shot stopper. Um, makes a lot of, of saves that he probably has no right to make. And, and I think keeps, you know, look, he's kept Honduras in these games. And then you even say that, and it's like they have zero wins. But 
if without him, they don't think they have maybe one or two of the three draws that they have either. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of like where Honduras is at. It's, it's not, it's not going well right now. Well, can you, can you, you know, deny us, I mean, not deny, can you diagnose a little bit more specifically what you think has gone wrong? Because, you know, they, they made the playoff in 2018, regrettably for the U S and, you know, they, they were in the world cup in 2014. So like what, what explains this drop off where they can't even, you know, they're, they're not mathematically out, but they're but probably by the end of this window, they will be and barring a miracle. I would say that it's the donut problem that the U S had in 2018, but without the other half of the donut, you know, remember that I, I think one of the issues of the U S was that you had this talent donut where you had this like retiring, amazing generation of Dempsey and Howard, et cetera. You had this other side of Pulisic and, and company. And then you had that middle. And who was in that kind of, who was in their prime? Who were the top players in that cycle? You know, we can name a few names, but there wasn't anyone who you'd really say, oh yeah, that guy, that guy was the guy. Honduras doesn't have that either. You know, Anthony Lozano is playing in Spain and playing well. He's maybe in form. Albert Elise, I think, is still on the rise. He's 25. So, you know, yeah, he, it's probably He's his time to start player, being yeah. the, the guy for the national team. And, and in a lot of ways, he is. But you need more than just one guy. And I think after that, the, the players from that, that generation of 2012, because of a, a variety of different factors, whether it was, you know, their own personal inability to break through, whether it was bad transfer advice, whether it was you know, any sort of things that kind of derail, they, they just didn't click. And I think you see the team, you know, like I said, like minor is old and, and you're still relying mm-hmm. on this old guy. I think a lot of the team has gotten old and yet like who have the replacements been? The other thing is, you know, there are some like Andy Nahar is another guy who like is in that, that prime of his career, but he doesn't want to be on the national team right now for reasons that are not entirely clear. Maybe I need to do more digging. Maybe it's out there. I know what he said in November, which was like he wanted to kind of uh, recover and be ready for the club season. Maybe that's still the case right now, but but he's a guy who's like, ah, he's in his prime and yet he's not there, right? So I, he, I think like... I was just going to say he was so good. He was so good. No, absolutely. That, um, that game against the US, even though they, they ended up losing 4-1 to us, he was toying with the... He was toying with US players in the first half. And I think that's the other the other foot you know is this mental element which i think is very real like the i think that's why they had to change managers because it was just clear things weren't going in the right direction that loss against the u.s we saw the scenes of honduran fans you know throwing things at not the u.s players at their own players booing not the u.s players but their own players because of this frustration and you know look like we we i, I write all the time on the newsletter and we talked a little bit about kind of this intersection of real life and soccer. And, you know, Honduras is in a weird situation right now. New president taking, taking the reins. There's some optimism there. You know, it looks like a peaceful transition of power, which is extremely exciting after what happened last time. But, you know, there, there are these tensions that exist in the society that I think are sometimes reflected in, in, the, in the football realm in a lot of different ways, right? So you see FA, questionable decisions from the FA. You see some of the frustrations I think spill over with fans being upset at the soccer team. It's like, are they upset at the soccer team or are they upset at the country? Maybe both, right? I mean, the soccer team isn't performing. Clearly it's the soccer team, but is that a manifestation of something bigger? I think those are 
you know, maybe maybe I'm going too too deep into it, but I my mm-hmm. suspicion is no. Yeah, I mean the the psychology of overlapping frustrations is pretty um relevant to the US, I think too. But we can we can I guess we can get into that on another podcast. That'd be great. Um <laughs> uh, so it looks I was just I just pulled up the the forecast looks like it's a high of 22, a low of 16 on um, next Wednesday for this game in St. Paul. It could be a lot worse. It could be a lot worse. 40% chance of snow. Um, anything else? Anything else you wish I had asked you about, John? No, I don't think so. I think uh, I had fun and I'm looking forward to the last one. I can't believe that uh, we're almost there, man. I can't. I really can't. I'm so believe great. It. I really can't believe it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to kind of relish it as it happens. It's you know, tough. It's, it I mean, it's it's like it was so compacted, the qualification cycle, that I think like if you've been following past cycles, it just feels like it just went in a blip because it did. You know, it started September, it ends March, and it's never gone that fast before. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been, it's been a ride. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks. Thanks for your, um, you know, your contributions to the podcast. Again, sign up for the newsletter, uh, getting concaf. I'll put the, I'll put the link in the show notes and tweet it out. Thank you, John Arnold. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll see ya. 